Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Campfire Redo! sauce on to oh, it. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hi, Allie. Hey, fiends. Uh, today, we are revisiting um, a Campfire Stories night that we did in February of 2021. Mm-hmm. So this is like in pandemic times. <laughs> um, and it was our one-year anniversary when we did it this. Was, yeah. What a fun night. Now, this was something we did live on, I think, YouTube. Yep. And we were dressed and made up to look like Regency era fancy ladies. Yes. <laughs> because this was also like right after Bridgerton came out. So everybody was wild about this. Yeah. And so we said, okay, we're going to tell some Regency era stories. Mm-hmm. And we did. And they were really fun. But I just realized that like not a lot of our listenership got to hear them. Right. So I figured I'll tell mine. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some point in time we'll hear yours. Yep. And um, and yeah, that would be a fun, fun way to spend the week. I like it. I like it. I because uh, I don't remember your story at all. Either, I forgot so. we did this. To be yeah. brutally honest, I totally forgot we did this. And but I remember it being a fun night. And it was then really I fun. just looked back on the video and was like, oh my god, we wore wigs. Yeah. I had a red wig. You yep. had a blonde wig. Yeah, we looked wild. And it John was really Radicasso funny. was there. He yep. was doing his makeup. I know. Everybody was totally dolled up. We were yeah. in my old house drinking probably bourbon or champagne or something yeah. wild. Yeah, it was a fun night. So we decided to uh, bring them to all of you. We hope you enjoy them. And also, happy pride yes. to all of our LGBTQIA plus fiend family. How much money have we raised for the Trevor Pod project so far? $400 so far. Yes. So we've already raised $400 yes. to donate to the Trevor project. Thanks to you guys. You're amazing. Mm. We do have plenty of pride cases coming for you guys that we mm-hmm. have been working on. Um, so don't worry. We're not ignoring it. It is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, There's just a little more work that had to be done on them before we could start with that. So we decided this week. Um, we would give you a fun little interlude and then we'll get into all the pride stuff next week. Great. Yeah. And if you guys want to, so uh, Holly was talking about the money we raised for the Trevor Project and anybody who donates $10 to the Trevor Project, we're sending a We Would Be Proud sticker that was yes. designed, custom designed by our littlest fiend, Violet Knapp. So you can donate and get your sticker over on our website, which is in our bio link on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, So you can go right there. It'll be like a link tree link and then the top one, which says 
Trevor Project donation sticker. It's all over the it's town. It's just there. I'll know? probably put Very up easy. another direct post this week too. Just yes. uh, we've been trying yeah, and to you kind can of recirculate it. They're right there. Just yep. type in Trevor Project. And it's all over. You'll find you'll it. You'll get it. And then um, I'll send you out a sticker ASAP. Yeah. All of them should be mailed out now that we have gotten so far. So if someone has not gotten theirs that should have, please reach out to me. Yes. Let sometimes us know. the post office. Yeah. Loses a letter. It does happen from time to time. Let yeah. us know. We don't want that to happen to you. Mm-hmm. That sounds mm-hmm. terrible. So, looking back on the stories that we told in this Regency era, I had to, we had to like you know look at the video a little bit, and I noticed our Regency skin. It was good. It was good. We looked really good. Yeah. yeah. And I'm looking at my face in the mirror now. It doesn't look as good. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were like babies in the 1800s. We were. We were. We had beautiful, smooth porcelain skin. Yes. And I really like to get back to that, Mm. but I don't want to use any of the beauty remedies of the day because we definitely have talked about them Yeah, and they're not great. Nope. But I have found that there is one thing that worked then and it will work now. Oh. And it is a healthy dose of validation, a hill worth dying on. It's sultry. I like it. Thank you. You're like... You're on it this week. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> and the best part of this ingredient, Leslie, is that our fiends can give it to us totally for free. What? Yeah. How? But how, you must be asking yourself. <laughs> yes. I heard. Ooh. Well, I will tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention, attention equals support, and support equals more and better content for you. But if you just cannot wait for more, we would be dead in your life. Don't worry. You don't have to. (laughs) Okay. Isn't that great? Yes. You can support us over on Patreon. There for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, special mini-sodes, our weekly after-show, Host Mortem, Mm -hmm. which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, and on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. In all honesty, we are here thanks to our patrons, so come on over and be part of the We Would Be Dead family. Nice. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. It's a good one. It really is a good choice. You can leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell your friendly neighborhood duchess. Ooh. That's Regency, right? Yes. I was going to say, like, tell your local ladies' maid, because I feel like they know everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll save that. I feel like, I feel like both know everything. Okay, well, well the ladies' maid is works for the Duchess, obviously. Right, right. So now I need two names. Okay. All right. So, Duchess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Duchess Charlize Braveton. Oh. You went... For the whole name. All right. Yeah. All right. And her lady's maid. What's her lady's maid's name? Just be like, Pam. <laughs> no, we already have <laughs> Pam. <laughs> okay. Okay. Duchess Charlize Braverton. Love her. And her lady's maid, Bethany. Bethany. 
And Bethany, like, knows everything. Everything. She overhears, but she's quiet, just like, yeah. you know, lacing up corsets and yeah. fluffing hair. But she's mm-hmm. like, oh, oh, I know. Oh, I know. Yeah. And I'm going to listen to We Would Be Dead. And then I'm going to get onto all their social media and tell them about everything. That would be like best case. Definitely tell your duchess because then we'll be able to get into like the upper class levels. And then the ladies maid will know and we'll get to the downstairs level. Uh, Yeah, I would like both. That sounds great. Upstairs and downstairs. I want the upstairs party, but all the downstairs gossip. We could bring these worlds together. We unify everything. Wow. I know. We're pretty impressive. World changers over here. We are. Then your friends and Duchess Charlie's Braverton and her ladies made Bethany (laughs) (laughs) can be good feeds and we could all hang out together. Goals. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's all I have in the way of announcements for this week. All right. <sighs> Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Um, I already talked about the stickers. You sure did. So then, no. All right, then. On with the show. So let us transport ourselves back to the Regency era. Mm. First of all, you might be wondering, why do they call it that? Yes. Well, it's called the Regency Era because the whole of England realized that their king, King George III, was quite insane. Which is always fun. Yes. (laughs) And yes, this is the King George of You'll Be Back and the Madness of King George fame. Apparently, the Mad King liked to incessantly ramble um, in, like, incoherent tirades. Right, right. He loved a good speech. Mm-hmm. And then there's the small matter of uh, his urine being blue. Interesting. He peed, like, blue. Did he eat a lot of blueberries? No, I think it was, like, popsicle blue. Did he have a lot of blueberry popsicles? I don't think so. The Mad King um, had this crazy blue pee, and that caused a lot of medical historians to think he might have suffered from a rare disease called porphyria, which is something we talked about when we talked about vampires. Okay. Right? It's often referred to as the vampire's disease. It can make you pale and photosensitive. It can also make you pee weird and babble incoherently. Check, 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 right? Plus, it's inherited and it seemed to run in the royal family, something they surely would never have talked about. Come right. now. More recently, however, medical historians have discovered that the Mad King was being treated with gentian, a still common ingredient in homeopathic tonics and tinctures that, you guessed it, makes you pee blue. And that is because it is derived from brilliantly hued blue flowers. Okay. So this would be real blue, not just a little blue. Now, these historians suspect that the Mad King suffered from a severe case of bipolar disorder, and gentian was used historically to treat all kinds of mental and personality disorders that, you know, people really didn't know what they were yet. Because he did go through extreme manic episodes, which would have caused the lengthy and absurd speeches, Mm -hmm. the babble, 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 and the bad decision-making. Anywho, on February 5th of 1811, Prince George of Wales took the throne from his father to save the country from his perceived insanity and was named the Prince Regent, thus ushering in the Regency era, which would continue throughout his reign. Okay. So that's just a little fun fact segment for you guys. Thanks. Yes. Love a history lesson. So tonight, this is from back then, we have a Regency era true crime case for all of you, and now you don't have to wonder what that means. Great. I know. So 
I am talking about the Ratcliffe Highway murders. Ooh. Yeah. Not 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 Daniel Radcliffe. Oh. I know. I was really hoping he'd be involved in this, yeah, but like a family Ratcliffe. line. I know. Anyway, the Ratcliffe Highway murders consists of two attacks on two separate families, the Marr family and the Williamson family, that result, resulted in seven fatalities. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot. It is a lot. It's a lot for me not to remember, too. I don't remember true. this at all. We've told a lot of stories. Yeah, I guess. Like, there's a lot. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the two attacks occurred 12 days apart. In December of 1811, in homes located half a mile apart near the London Docklands district of Wapping, London, England. Love it. Wapping. What a good name. Mm -hmm. Wapping. Mm -hmm. The first attack took place in the home of linen draper and hosier, Timothy Marr. What is a linen draper and hosier? It's a shop that sells fabric and hosiery, so like stockings and the stuff you would need to make dresses. But it does sound really fancy when you put it the other way. Timothy Marr, who was either 24 or 27, depending on which account you read. Either 7 feet or 14 feet. Exactly. <laughs> 7 to 14 feet. Yeah. It's one of those things where this is so old and recounted so many times that you're like, I don't know which one's correct. So he had previously served several years with the East India Company aboard the trading ship Dover Castle. And on April of 1811, he decided to settle down in his current occupation and location and start a family. So he's like, I traveled the world in a boat. We traded all kinds of stuff. It was probably dangerous. We probably talked with privateers and pirates. Cool, but I'm tired and done. So now, time to sell stockings and dressmakings. This is funny. I feel like this is opposite of our flag means death. Kind of is opposite show. of our flag means death. <laughs> the best show. If you haven't yeah. watched that, you should totally watch See, it, See, we brought in... Pride Month somehow. We sure did. <laughs> well done. Well done. Let's see how many more times we can get in there. Okay. <laughs> um, so, Timothy had a shop at 29 Ratcliffe Highway on the south side of the street between Cannon Street Road and Artichoke Hill. Wasn't that fun this name? This is adorable. I know. Where do you live? I live on Artichoke Hill. <laughs> Ratcliffe Highway was the old name for a road in the east end of London, which is now simply called The Highway. Okay. Why would you shave down its actual name and be like, we don't need a name. It's just the highway. You know, keep it plain and simple. Keep it simple, exactly. Direct. Back then, one of three main roads, it, it was one of three main roads that left the city. So it's a major thoroughfare. Now, this was not a nice section of town, though. It was quite run down and dangerous, with a lot of shady dealings taking place there regularly. And many of the buildings were run down tenements. So Timothy had to live in, like, not a great place. This is on Artichoke Hill? It's it's um the area, the street between Cannon Street Road and Artichoke Hill. So maybe Artichoke Hill like rose up over the slum and it was maybe. nicer. I would like to hope. I would like to look it up afterwards. <laughs> maybe you should look up Artichoke Hill. <laughs> in Wapping? Yes, Wapping. So Timothy lived in the quarters behind the shop with his wife, Celia, their 14-week-old son, Timothy Jr., his apprentice, James Gowan, and a servant girl named Margaret Jewell. And it was um, Timothy Sr.'s apprentice, not his 14-week-old son's apprentice. I realized the way I wrote that, it sounds kind of weird. <laughs> so anyway, all of the occupants of this home moved in at the same time. On the night of Saturday, December 7th, 1811, the Mars were awake and busy in the shop preparing for their next day of work late into the evening. Saturday was payday, and for many British shopkeeps of the time, it was also the busiest day of the week. 
and the shops would remain open late into the night. So there was much to be done. That was because everybody got paid on Friday. So like some of them would go out after getting paid and that's when they would spend their money. I feel that. Yeah. Just before midnight that night, an intruder slipped into their home. Margaret, the servant girl, had been sent out to purchase a late night meal of oysters. Timothy had planned this extravagance as a surprise for his wife, who had just given birth a few months earlier and was still recovering. Margaret was also to stop at a nearby bakery to pay an outstanding bill for the Mars. Margaret would later report seeing a man lingering outside the shop as she left to run her errands. But that she did not find that unusual as the area was nearly always busy well into the night on Friday into Saturday. So technically it was Saturday at that point, but it was, you know, really late. I am looking at the area. Yeah. And it is, it would be like, like a very busy town area. Mm -hmm. It's really close to the Tower of London. Okay. And it's near the water too. Like the Artichoke Hill Road is near the water. And then um, like the the river. um, Yeah. Was it? I, I always want to say it wrong but the the Thames the Thames yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um and then but it's right by like there's Chapel Hill there so it's very busy okay yeah all right so yeah then that would make sense like people lingering around and, and walking around on a Friday night would not strike you as weird Mm-mm. got it so Margaret's on this errand she goes about her business unfortunately though the oyster shop was closed mm-hmm. rats so she walked back towards the bakery to pay off the bill she had been tasked with Also, sorry, I also love that he, that the husband, right, is Mm -hmm. sent Margaret on this task to get oysters for his wife as like a surprise because they're an aphrodisiac. So he's probably just like, we're going to get some oysters. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to have a night. It's been some weeks. I know we had a baby, but like, I got you these oysters. You're like fixed up down there at this point. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. That's probably part that's really funny. Oh, God. So Margaret is going towards this bakery where she has to pay off their tab. Uh, and in the process, she walked back past their the Mars house, the place where she was living with the family, and she saw them in the lighted windows still busy at work. So she's like, all right, I'll keep going on my errand. Everybody's still working. They're going to be depressed about the oysters, but whatever. At least I can get this done. Business as usual. So Margaret then went to the bakery, but that was also closed. No. I know. She's like, God damn it, I can't do anything. What time did she go out? It was like midnight. It was like late. This is, well, Margaret. I know. know. Well, husband. Come on. He sent her out. Okay. All right. Yeah. But did he send her out like hours ago and she was just like, I'll get around to it. I don't think so. Let me double check. (laughs) And this is the probably not. I'm sure she was. I'm sure she was just like, I don't think anything's open. He's like, it's Friday night. Everything's definitely open. open. (laughs) So a lot of things also say it was a Saturday night. But I think that's because it crossed over from Friday into Saturday. And so people are. But either way, it's a weekend night. Yeah, exactly. So like they assumed she would be. It would be open. Yeah. Just before midnight, an intruder slipped into their home. Margaret, the servant girl, had been sent out. So she's walking around. It's like midnight. Damn. Yeah, the shop's oyster stores are not open, you guys. All right. But but she decided after the bakery was another failure that she'd try one more shop to look for those oysters. Because maybe she could come home with that. Sure. But the shop was also closed. Bummer. (laughs) I know. So she started plotting her way home totally empty-handed, which sucks for Margaret. Yeah. 
She arrives back at the shop at approximately 12.20 a.m. So this whole thing took her like 20 minutes, not long. Because <laughs> everything is closed. <laughs> I know. <laughs> walk, walk, walk. And it's all right there, I yeah. guess. And um, she found that the building was dark and the door was locked. So this is the house. Now, as we have discussed before, humans do not immediately assume the worst in an unusual situation. So Margaret assumed that the Mars had forgotten she went out on this errand because they were so busy at work. And they got really tired and just closed up the shop and collapsed into the bed and went to sleep. Okay. So she was like, ah, shit. They forgot about me and now I'm going to have to wake them up. This is a bad night for Margaret. I know. She's like, They're, my home is also closed. I know. Everything <laughs> is closed. What am I going to do? So she knocks on the door and waits for a few moments in silence. After what seemed like an eternity, I'm sure it did because yeah. she's like, Jesus Christ, I just want to go inside. She heard a noise that sounded like footsteps in the hall. So she assumed that someone was coming, of course, to let her in, right? Yeah. A few more moments passed and she heard the baby cry out from upstairs in the residence. Mm. And yet still, nobody came to the door. Hmm. I think if I were her and I heard that, I would also be like, oh, the baby's making noise. So they went to get the fussy baby and they're not paying attention to why. Initially, yeah, yeah. for sure. But at least I'd be like, okay, but at least somebody's up right, and right. I can knock again. Exactly. And- I, but I'm just saying, I, I don't think I still would be like, something's wrong. Oh, I'd yeah. be like, they're just minding their business and they're not yeah. listening. Seconds later, while still trying to get the attention of her employers, Margaret heard footsteps on the pavement behind her. Ooh. Yeah. Not like that. That's really scary. Terrified, she slammed the knocker against the door with unintermitting violence, and that is a quotation, drawing attention to herself. So she grabbed like the metal knocker and just started slamming it really hard, which would be louder, obviously. Oh my God. Is this when all is well started? (gasps) George Olney, the night watchman who called out the time every half hour. (laughs) This is. is rushed to the scene to find out what was going on. So it was like, half past 12 and all is well. Oh. All is not well. Oh boy, yep. this is it. This okay. Is, this is when all is not well became I the thing we that. did. Yeah, me too. <laughs> George, who knew the Mars well, knocked at the door and called out. But again, no response. Like, that's helpful. But also, she's like, I've been pounding on this door and they won't come. And he's like, let me try pounding on it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I mean, sometimes you need a man to do things I, for you. I guess you do. They just do it better. But George also noticed that the shutters were in place but had not been latched. The noise had also awakened John Murray, a pawnbroker, and the Mars next-door neighbor. So all this kerfuffle woke up their neighbor, too. Alarmed, he jumped over the wall that divided his yard from 29 Ratcliffe Highway and saw a light on and the back door standing wide open to the house. Mm. So they're only around front. They didn't see the back. This is a neighbor who sees it. Why did neither of the people trying to get in the house go around the back? Could they not just jump over the wall? Well, there was another door. I don't know. They just didn't. John Murray. I wasn't there, so I wouldn't know. Yeah, I know. But this neighbor saw it, and he jumped the fence okay. dividing their properties and entered the house. I mean, maybe it was a hard fence. <sighs> John Murray entered the house and went up the back steps, calling the Mars and noticing that they had neglected to fasten their shutters and that Margaret had been left out in the cold. He was like, hey, guys, your windows are all kind of open and your your employee is outside pounding on your door. What is going on? And all is not well. (laughs) And he's like, all is not well. (laughs) But he's calling all this stuff out to them and he's hearing no response. Right. Now that's getting scary. Is the baby still crying probably? I don't know. Okay. 
Returning downstairs and entering the shop, John Murray beheld, quote, the carnage of the night stretched out on the floor. Yeah. Quote, the narrow premise so floated with gore that it was hardly possible to escape the pollution of blood in picking out a path to the front door. Oh, man. They talked talked very fancy back then. I don't totally remember this, but like warning, I don't know that the baby made it. Okay. We won't be graphic about it. Don't worry. First, the night watchman who had walked in saw James Gowan, the apprentice, lying on the floor about five feet from the stairs just inside the shop's door. The boy's face had been smashed in and his blood was dripping onto the floor. Ooh, his brains had been pulverized. I know, and cast about the walls and across the counters. Yeah, well, I guess if they were like, if his face was smashed It feels like really violent, yeah. Yeah. It was a nightmarish and violent death to be sure. John Murray then went to the front door to let George Olney in, but in the process, he tripped over the body of Celia Marr. She lay face down on the floor, her head battered in just like James Gowan's, her wounds still leaking fresh blood. John Murray and George Olney, so John Murray is the neighbor, George Olney is the night watchman, okay. are now quite panicked, and they are thinking of nothing but the baby who had been letting out a cry just moments before they made their way in. They rushed in the living quarters and found Timothy Jr. dead in his crib. <laughs> I know. Baby. Yeah, and he had suffered a death that was just as bad as his parents. <sighs> By the time John Murray and George Olney discovered the baby, the commotion had begun to draw a crowd because no one's being quiet about this. More people from the neighborhood had gathered outside and the Thames River police were summoned. The first officer on the scene was Charles Horton. As nothing appeared to have been taken, money was in the till and 152 pounds was found in a drawer in the bedroom. There seemed to be no motive. So this is like violence for the sake of violence or revenge or something because there was nothing for them to gain. Mm. A thief might have been scared off before he finished, but the other and more likely possibility was some sort of revenge attack by someone who knew Timothy Marr. Officer Horton initially believed that the weapon used to kill the Mars and James Gowan had been a ripping chisel. One of those was found in the shop, but it was clean. In the bedroom, he found a heavy, long-handed shipwright's hammer, or a maul, covered with blood, leaning against a chair. Now, this is similar to the weapon we saw used in, like, the Hinterkaifeck murders. Okay. Officer Horton assumed this was the murder weapon, which the assailant would have abandoned when he heard Margaret knocking on the door and was scared off. Human hairs were stuck in the drying blood on the flat, heavy end, and the tapered end used for driving nails into wood was chipped. So if you guys have any memory of the Hinterkaifeck murder, that one was also, like, very bloody and brutal. Okay. So this weapon is is rough. It's like an axe and a hammer kind of put together. Oh, and I so I just looked up what a ripping chisel was. Yeah. Which I didn't know, but it, it actually looks like um, it's used for ripping out fabric and staples from wood. Okay. Um, so it almost lo- it almost looks like a crowbar in shape. Oh, okay. But then it has like the like the end, the other side of the hammer mm-hmm. on both sides like that. So. Okay. So I can see why they would think that. That's a pretty logical guess. Yeah. Yeah, um, because this is a campfire story, I I didn't, like, go down every little mm-hmm. pathway, obviously. And a shipwright's hammer or a maul is, like, 
a pretty intimidating looking hammer if you know what it's being used for in this case. So it has that sharp kind of tapered end. Some of them come to a point and then the the flat hammer side. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if that's what you're using, it's going to be a pretty, pretty violent death. Yeah. Hammers are always a nightmare, but then the hammers with like the sharp stuff. Oh, right. Yeah, it's like a sledgehammer. Right. And then it has like the little smaller. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So two sets of footprints were then discovered at the back of the shop, which officers assumed must have belonged to the killers. So they say killers plural. As they contained both blood and sawdust from carpentry work done inside earlier that day. So, all right, that's, yeah, probably from Mm -hmm. your, your murderers. A group of onlookers followed the footprints all the way to Pennington Street, which ran behind the house and found a possible witness who reported that he had seen a group of some 10 men running away from an empty house in the direction of New Gravel Lane shortly after the alarm had been raised. Officers now speculated that the crime was the work of a criminal gang. Okay. Officer Horton took the bloodstained mall back to his station to find that three sailors who had been seen in the area that night, were already in custody. Mm. Yeah, one appeared to have spots of blood on his clothing, but all three had convincing alibis and were then released. Other men were apprehended in the area strictly on the basis of witnesses' reports, but the cases against them also fell apart. A reward of 50 guineas was offered for the apprehension of the perpetrator, and to notify area residents of this, a handbill was drafted and stuck on church doors. So this is like a flyer like a you know wanted type situation okay. wouldn't it be fun if it was like 50 guinea pigs yes <laughs> they <laughs> would have solved you, it so much faster we'll give you 50 guinea pigs because everyone would be like i want i want all 50. i want that so bad let's like an army of guinea pigs i want them <laughs> just saying wouldn't that be fun it would be a delay uh, this is from someone who wants like lots of pomeranians that follow her around yes. so it makes sense <laughs> now on december 10th a coroner's jury I'm making references in this to cases we covered so long ago, which we explained in our Lizzie Borden episode. And we did really well. So if you need it, go ahead back there. Yeah, go go re-listen. They determined that the assailant must have arrived in the shop just after Margaret left at 11.50. So when she went out to get oysters and pay bakery bill, they like probably watched her leave and then went in. Well, when she failed to go out and get oysters and pay a bakery bill. She went out. She just failed to do all the things. Yeah. She had a a 20-minute good time. Yeah, and they suspect that the assailants were still there when she got back at 20 after 12. Right. When she first started knocking. Well, it sounded like it because she heard the footsteps. And that they had fled out the back door, which is why it was left open, upon hearing her knock. Okay. Several possible suspects were looked into, including one of the carpenters who had been in the shop that day and Timothy's own brother. Mm. But all of them had sound alibis and were let go. The four victims were given a memorial service, then buried beneath the monument in the parish of St. George in the east. When the mall was cleaned on Thursday, December 19th, it appeared that some initials were carved into the handle. Oh. Yeah, we just noticed that. Hmm. Perhaps with a Siemens coppering punch. Ew. Sounds disgusting. (laughs) Don't ever give me a Siemens coppering punch. I'm good. I don't want that. But that would be... um, um, like if it was issued to someone who worked on a boat. Right. 
And they would have used a coppering punch with something that you would have put your initials into like metal with or something. Okay. So not um, a drink. <laughs> no, or a really deviant maneuver. Mm. <laughs> um, okay. So the initials were either IP or JP. And officers now had a way to trace the owner. Okay. But that wasn't the only thing that happened on December 19th. No. The second set of murders also occurred at the King's Arms Tavern. The victims were 56-year-old John Williamson, who had run the tavern for 15 years, and his 60-year-old wife, Elizabeth, and their servant, Bridget Anna Harrington, who was in her late 50s. The King's Arms Tavern was not a rowdy or late-night establishment. <laughs> so this was like you go there for dinner and it closes at 9. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like an older couple running a joint. Exactly. <laughs> like, they probably I, uh, have great soup. Right. And he's been running it for 15 years. So he's probably like, I have a dream, but also I don't have the stamina to stay up late. Yes. <laughs> we make great tea. Yeah. But at nine o'clock, we got to close. <laughs> and the Williamsons were known to go to bed early. Yeah. <laughs> of course they were. We have to go read our stories. Yeah. We're very tired. <laughs> yeah. We were up before dawn for no reason. Yeah. Earlier that night, John Williamson had told one of the local constables that he had seen a man wearing a brown jacket lurking around the tavern oh, and listening at his door. Gross. Listen, if anybody is lurking, I'm calling the cops. I know. Lurking is always bad. It's yeah. never good. He asked the officer to keep an eye out for the stranger and arrest him if discovered. You can't arrest him for lurking. I can. I mean. I'm gonna. I, I don't love that he was lurking. But it's not an arrestable offense. I mean, but did they have one of those signs outside? No, lurking. Yeah. <laughs> I think even if you have that sign, they, the cops would be like, I mean, you can request they not do it, but we can't arrest them. Right. Can't they tell them to move along? Though? I guess so, but they already closed. Yeah, so move along. The you guy was to be just standing like, out here. If you see him anywhere, just arrest him. <laughs> yeah. He's I get also it, man. An old guy who needed to go to bed. Yes, it's terrifying. It is. Because he probably also, they, they probably lived there, right? Is that where they yeah. lived? Yeah. I'm pretty sure they just lived upstairs because that's yeah. how those places were. So, not long afterwards, though, the same constable heard someone shouting out, Murder! Oh, no. Yes, which naturally drew a crowd. Just then, outside of the king's arms, a nearly naked man lowered himself from the second floor using a rope he had fashioned himself out of knotted bed sheets. I hate this story. <laughs> Can you imagine seeing that? No. Don't worry. He dropped to the street below, crying and babbling incoherently. Ugh. Totally naked, climbed down a rope he made out of sheets, crying on the ground. Was it the king? I mean, maybe. <laughs> this man was John Turner. Ugh, oh, not the king. Okay. A lodger who had been staying at the tavern for eight months. Okay. That's a long stay. Yeah. But remember, in those days, a tavern was not just a bar and restaurant, but it was also a boarding house mm -hmm. or hotel. So I guess lengthy stays were not super uncommon. Yeah. That could be... He was part of the extended, yeah. extended stay group. Mm -hmm. The crowd, sensing imminent doom, forced the tavern doors open and were met with the sight of John Williamson's body lying face up on the steps leading into the tap room. His head was bashed in and his throat had been slit. Mm. An iron crowbar, which you said is like the um, the chisel thing, yeah. right? Was lying at his side. 
While the crowbar appeared to be the weapon that was used to beat him about the head, a sharper tool had been used to slit his throat and inexplicably nearly hack off his hand. Ooh, yeah, that's a weird one. Shortly after the grim discovery, Elizabeth Williamson and Bridget Harrington were found in the parlor. Their skulls had both been smashed and their throats cut. Elizabeth's neck had been severed to the bone. Bridget's feet were still beneath the fireplace grate, as though someone had snuck up on her while she was preparing the fire for the next morning. The crowd, which was really rowdy by now, Mm -hmm. had grown in size and armed themselves to the teeth. So this is like a pitchfork-wielding crowd. Storming through the inn in search of the monster who did this, which makes me think of that scene in Beauty and the Beast when, like, they all are like, ah, kill the beast! I know, but that's, like, sad. This is, like, good. Get (laughs) him! Right, but instead of the person responsible for this bloody scene, they discovered the Williamson's 14-year-old granddaughter, Catherine Stillwell, alone in her bed, alive and untouched. Miraculously, she had slept through the entire attack and had no idea what had just occurred. Yeah, she was probably horrified to wake up to that crowd. For real. And the deepest sleeper. Yeah, I feel that. That's my girl. (laughs) You identify. I love Uh, a good deep sleep. I would too. I just am bad at it. So the bodies were placed on their beds because everyone tampered with crime scenes back then. They're like, move the bodies immediately with your bare hands. And Catherine was taken to a safe place where I'm sure she got lots of trauma counseling or probably just like alcohol and liquid opiates. Sure. Mm -hmm. They're like, calm her down with this. Yes, find her a husband. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, you'll feel much better later. Fire bells were rung to call out volunteers and London Bridge was sealed off. (gasps) I know. Lisa wasn't falling down yet. I know. Falling down, falling down. They were not messing around though. Acting on eyewitness accounts that a tall man had been loitering outside the tavern that night, wearing a flushing coat, several Bow Street runners, which were London's first official police force, were assigned to hunt down the murderer. God, I wish cops were still called the Bow Street runners. I know. It's like a band. That's amazing. Anyway, the responsible party had gained entry to the premises by forcing open the the cellar door. Mm. So they pried open the cellar door. An open window was also discovered with blood stains on the sill, indicating that this was the murderer's escape route. And better still, a footprint in the mud outside this window seemed to confirm it. The path by which the assailant would have escaped was slippery and clay, so it could be assumed that when found, his coat would be covered in clay. Okay. He went out the window and it was like like gross, wet clay. It was pointed out that this type of escape route was similar to the one taken by the person who had murdered the Marr family. There were no known connections between the two families, and there was also no apparent motive for either crime. But John Williamson's watch had gone missing, and both crimes seemed to have been interrupted. So perhaps they both started off as simple robberies. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. A task force of constables from various parishes and a group of Bow Street runners was quickly assembled. They arrested and then released several suspects whose stories all checked out. Local magistrates convened and quickly offered another reward of a hundred guineas this time. (gasps) Wow. Such a cute little mob. Double the amount of the reward in the case of the Marr family. And this was for information leading to the capture of the culprit. 
and handbills were drafted and posted within the hour. Rewards were offered by three different parishes for information, including two other offers of 50 pounds. Survivor John Turner was then interviewed in a coroner's inquest, and he said, quote, that he had entered the King's Arms at about 1040 on the night of December 19th and had gone to his room on the upper floor. He had heard Mrs. Williamson lock the door. Then he heard the front door bang open hard and Bridget shout, we are all murdered. What? Okay. Williamson then exclaimed, I am a dead man. As he lay in bed listening, John Turner heard several blows. He also heard someone walking about. After a few minutes, he left his bed and went to investigate. Don't investigate. No. As John Turner crept down the stairs, he heard three drawn-out sighs and saw that a door stood open with a light shining on the other side. He peered in and caught a glimpse of a man he estimated was six feet tall, wearing a dark flushing coat, leaning over Mrs. Williamson and going through her pockets. I know, I don't like that. I don't like this story, Holly. You can stop. Mm -hmm. John Turner saw only one man before going back up the stairs. He was like, fuck this, I'm out of here. Rather than become a victim as well, he then tied two sheets together in his bedroom and lowered himself out of the house. He knew that Mr. Williamson's watch was missing and described it, but could not recall there ever being a crowbar in the tavern like the one found next to the corpse. The conclusion was that it must have been brought there by the killer. Okay, um, I get why you went out the window. Why were you naked? Some people just sleep naked. Did he lose his clothes on the way down? No, he was naked the whole time. Maybe it, he just didn't have PJs, Holly. People sleep naked. But he ha- he waited in his room before he went down to investigate. He had enough time to put something on. Maybe he didn't have anything. Maybe they were all still wet and heating by the fire overnight. You couldn't take a blanket or a sheet with you? There was no time. People were dying. Mm-hmm. People were murdered. <laughs> you hear someone scream, we are all murdered. And you're like, run down naked. Yeah, what is the point of having clothes on? I don't know. And maybe your naked body will shock the killer. Oh, that Okay, that's a fair point. They're going to be like, oh my God. He was like, I have one weapon. <laughs> and it's all of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Yeah. You don't like that? Both work in this situation. Yeah. Okay. So the principal suspect in the murders, John Williams, which was the other guy's name. That's weird was a 27-year-old Irish or Scottish, depending on the recount you read, seaman and a lodger at the Pear Tree, a boarding house on Cinnamon Street, another cute street, mm-hmm. which was just off the highway. Williams's roommate had noticed that he had returned after midnight on the ni- night of the tavern murders. Thomas De Quincey claimed that Williams had also been an acquaintance of Timothy Marr. The Times described him as a five foot nine slender um, and that he had a pleasing countenance. Williams had nursed a grievance against Marr from when they were shipmates, which could explain the first string of murders, but not the second. Explains mm-hmm. the hammer, explains the grievance with the Marr family. The Shadwell Police Office examined Williams. He had two pawn tickets on his person, some silver coins, and a pound note. His last voyage had been on the Roxborough Castle an East India Company trading ship, and he had narrowly escaped being part of a failed mutiny attempt. Ooh. Told you that ship's got to be dramatic. Right. Any of those ships. 
Williams was educated and had a reputation for being honest and popular with women. Okay. Yeah. He had been seen drinking with at least one other man at the King's Arms shortly before the murders. He said that the Williamsons... Okay, so the other guy's last name is Williamson. Okay, I was getting confused. It is very confusing. Okay. Considered him a family friend. What aroused suspicion was Williams's earlier mention that he had no money, although he was seen to have money soon after the murders. Mm. So they were like, you were there. You had no money. Then suddenly you had money. Clearly you're a murderer. Okay. He claimed that this was because he had pawned some articles of clothing afterwards, offering the pawn tickets as proof. And that after he had left the tavern that evening, he had consulted a surgeon about an old wound, as well as a woman with some knowledge of medicine. (laughs) Great. (laughs) No one investigated this alibi or checked the dates on the pawn tickets. They just, they were like, okay, great. Despite his insistence that he was innocent, Williams was remanded to Colbath Fields Prison. So I guess they just didn't believe him. And they didn't check out any of the evidence of his alibi. That's crazy. On December 24th, the mall was identified as belonging to a sailor named John Peterson, who was away at sea, so JP. Okay. The information was volunteered by the landlord of the pear tree, who was incarcerated in Newgate Prison for debt. So this guy's in debtor's prison. And he's like, I can tell you who who that belongs to, which probably was something that was met with, oh, for that information, we will give you whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't trust jailhouse confessions. Anyway. Constables searched the premises and found Peterson's trunk, which was missing his mall. So I guess their trunk has specific things in it and his did not have his hammer in it. Okay. The landlord recalled that not only had the mall been in the chest, but that he himself had used it and was responsible for chipping it. Mm-hmm. It should be noted that this confession earned the landlord enough reward money to pay off his debts. Excellent. Like I just said. Even though John Turner could not identify Williams in a court of law, his laundress was called to see if she had washed any bloody clothing. She said that two weeks earlier, she had noticed that one of his shirts was torn and that another had blood on the collar as if from bloody fingers. She assumed that Williams had been in a fight. She had not washed any clothing for him since before the Williamsons were murdered. Williams claimed that the torn and bloodstained shirts were the result of a brawl after a card game. Mm -hmm. But he was silenced by the magistrate and returned to prison. They were like, Mm -hmm. I don't care. Go back to jail. I mean, but already, like, that doesn't feel right because it would, the amount of carnage there was, his shirt probably would have been soaked. Exactly. And plus, like, this guy has a bunch of evidence that his alibi is, or at least the evidence you could prove. Right. Or just right, but they didn't but check they it didn't out. check it. Okay. No. Though there was circumstantial evidence against him, there was no concrete evidence and the courts relied heavily on witness testimony. Okay. I suppose we might have found out more about Williams if he had made it to trial, but he didn't. On December 28th, he used his scarf to hang himself from an oh. iron bar inside of his cell. I know. No one discovered this until just before he was to be taken for another hearing before the Shadwell magistrates. An officer announced to the court that the accused was dead and that his body was cold. Williams' suicide surprised everyone who had spoken to him. Several prisoners and a warden said that he had appeared to be in good spirits only the day before, believing that he would soon be exonerated and released. This led to later speculation that Williams was murdered to prevent mm. authorities from looking elsewhere. 
Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. He's way older than you think. Mm. <laughs> or was. This, however, satisfied the courts as being the, quote, actions of a guilty man. No. And all other suspects were dismissed. <gasps> I know, I hate it. But the story's not over? No, but... The Home Secretary was more than happy to agree with the opinion of the bench and decided that the best way to end the matter was to parade Williams's no, body through Wapping and Shadwell so that the residents could see that while he had, quote, cheated the hangman, he was indeed dead and no longer a menace. The Thames River Police, the Bow Street Mounted, Mounted Patrol, and local constables and watchmen, all was not well, were ordered to oversee the event. On New Year's Eve, sounds like a freaking party, Williams's body was removed from the prison at 11 a.m. with, quote, an immense concourse of persons, said to total 180,000 people taking part in a procession up the Ratcliffe Highway. When the cart carrying the body drew opposite the Marr family house, the procession halted for nearly a quarter of an hour, which is 15 minutes, guys. Don't put yeah. it so dramatically. <laughs> One on a quarter of an hour. That's 15 minutes. Get out of here. One onlooker said, quote, when the cart came opposite to the late Mr. Mars house, a halt was made for nearly a quarter of an hour. Which is probably like 12 minutes then. <laughs> the procession then advanced to St. George's Turnpike, where the new road, now Commercial Road, is intersected by Cannon Street Road. Those who accompanied the procession arrived at a grave already dug six feet down. The remains of John Williams were tumbled out of the cart and lowered into this hole. Then someone hammered a stake through his heart. Mm. No motives for the murders were ever found, though a couple people have speculated that Williams was neurosyphilitic, which means he had syphilis that went to his brain. And this would be like, um, kind of like John List's wife. We talked about neurosyphilis in that episode a lot. And therefore, um, he could have just had lost grasp on reality at that point and bore an irrational grudge against humanity. Though no postmortem examination was ever done of his brain or the rest of his body for that matter, so we wouldn't know. Still others strongly believe that Williams was, in fact, not guilty and was murdered to preserve the real killer whose motives we will never know. The hasty decision to convict a dead man was said to have been made to appease a frightened public who desperately needed someone to blame. Most people consider the Radcliffe Highway murders to be a mystery to this day. In fact, the murders are repeatedly referenced in Alan Moore's graphic novel, From Hell, mm. where Sir William Gull speculates that the murders were a false flag operation of sorts committed by the Freemasons in order to spur on the creation of the modern police force and thus further the organization's authoritarian agenda. Just wait till they got a load of the Ripper, who we did cover. Right. I say here, I promise, promise, promise we will cover, but we did. We kept our promise, you guys. We did it. We covered them. Yeah, we sure did. Or, who knows? Yeah. So um, that is where the Radcliffe Highway murders end. That's so wild. It's I do super remember, wild. I kind of remember the Freemason mm -hmm. conspiracy theory. But that's just such a weird one. It is. For that. It's another example of, and, and way older than like the examples we've recently talked about. I mean, we just talked about this with Brittany Drexel. It's where cops want 
they just want an answer. They just want a solution. It doesn't matter if it's a right solution. They want to appease the panicked public and move on. Yeah. Um, And so they found this guy that they really thought did it, even though there was evidence to the contrary. I mean, like, did they ever find this doctor or the woman he saw about the surgery he wanted? Did they ever go explore those pawn tickets? Nobody did any of that. We have no idea. Right. But they just, they hung their hat on this solution. And then when he took his own life or was murdered, Mm-hmm. which I think he was probably murdered. They were like, okay, great. This looks like he was so guilty that he killed himself rather than face trial. So we can make this big deal over like, well, it's all over now. And then right. just close the books. Oof. Yeah. So that's pretty wild. That is really wild. I wonder that, I mean, like, again, we cover so many things. What were the Ripper dates? Well, because, oh, yeah. What I mean, that was Victorian era, though, right? Again, I, we oh, it was much later. It was eighteen eighty eight to eighteen ninety one. Um, because like, what was this? This is uh, eighteen eleven, so it's not the same guy. Yeah, he'd be much too old. Yeah, because part of me was like, well, maybe it was the same killer. Yeah, but maybe it was like a sixteen year old, and then <laughs> yeah, but no, this is way too big of a gap. But yeah, it's a crazy one. The fact that they, like, drug his body through the streets and stuff. No, There is a lot. I mean, like, I did that as a campfire story. So, undoubtedly, there is more information on it. And I know that this particular story has um, a lot of conspiracy theories attached to it. I'm actually looking at it right now just to see if there's anything. Oh, God. Postmortem sketch of John Williams. Yikes. That's the first thing that comes up. Oh, so they put the stake through his heart because suicides could not be buried on consecrated ground because there is sin and Catholicism and probably right. other Christianity. The stake was meant to keep the restless soul from wandering, mm-hmm. while the crossroads were meant to confuse whoever, I guess he's buried at a crossroads, whatever evil ghost arose from the grave. In addition, the grave was deliberately made too small for the body, oh God, so that the murderer would feel uncomfortable even in death. Mm. Quick lime was added to the pit and it was covered over. So his body was like quickly destroyed. The procession also stopped for 10 minutes in front of the king's arms where the coachman reportedly whipped the dead man three times across the face. So this was like a garish, awful display. God. Wow. Here's what I was actually curious about. Some alternative suspects. And this is just a wiki rundown because I was curious. John Williams' arrest would have interested two other people involved, Cornelius Hart and William Long Billy mm-hmm. <laughs> Abias. Hart, who had done carpentry work at the Mars shop on the day of the murders, claimed to have lost a chisel and made several inquiries about its whereabouts to Marr. Jewel testified that Marr searched his shop that night but could not find any trace of it. When Hart had visited the shop on the morning after the murders, he found the chisel in a prominent position and removed it as evidence. Hart always denied any particular dealings with Williams, although other witnesses provided a link between the two. Following Williams's arrest, Hart inquired at the pear tree whether Williams was being retained in custody. Tobias was a seaman who had sailed with Williams aboard the Roxborough Castle. He had a history of aggressive behavior and had been involved in the unsuccessful mutiny aboard the ship and was placed in confinement afterwards while Williams was thought to have simply been led astray by his shipmates. Abias was drinking in company with Williams the King Arms on the night of the murders and was far better matched for Turner's description of the killer. So he looks more like the lurking guy. He was also lame, matching an earlier eyewitness description of one of the men running up the highway after the first murder. So I guess one of them had a limp and was unable to account for some of his time 
on the nights of both murders. He was detained as a suspect when evidence emerged that Marr, Williams, and Abias had all served together as seamen before Marr went into business on his own. It was suggested that there were links and possibly old scores to settle between the three. Oh, yeah, this is wild. The motive has remained a mystery for these murders and caused for speculation for detectives and crime buffs. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's just a lot of conspiracy theories, basically. Mm. Like, a lot. But I guess they didn't have any other, like, similar murders after that. No. Mm-mm. No, so it would appear that whoever committed the crimes either was just done, or if you want to believe that they caught the person who did it, mm-hmm. he was dead. Interesting. Yeah, so it's... It's difficult. Hmm. But now I'm like wondering about those like the semen that they brought in at the beginning. Uh-huh. Like those three, those three guys. Yep. I mean, it's all sailors all the time, apparently. I know. That's what it, se- it seems like. It's mm-hmm. a sailor of some sort. It would seem that way, especially because the hammer and stuff. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, that's um, that's the Radcliffe Highway murders. Pretty wild. So. That is wild. I'm glad we read that because I don't remember it. Mm-hmm. I re- I remember it slightly, but not really, not really at all. I always remember the guy climbing out of his window naked. Yeah. Now that's like, that's like the hook of this story. It's what everybody mentions when they kind of preview it. <laughs> and I think it's just so funny that like, I don't know that we ever found out exactly why he was naked. I, he was probably just sleeping naked. Uh, I don't know. Or maybe he thought like, Maybe that was, maybe he misunderstood the quote initially. I don't know. And he thought it was like time to come down for their like orgy. Like, and then was just like, oh shit. Maybe. Oh God. Was, she definitely said Mm -hmm, we're being mm -hmm. murdered or whatever it was. (laughs) Yeah. He, the, whoever the murderer was, they had haphazardly rung the orgy bell. Yeah. And he was like. Or like he heard. Bridget's voice mm-hmm. and was just like, it's time to go. Time to go. I'm going to come down here naked. And I'm going to go back upstairs and climb out the window. Yeah. Uh-huh. I yeah. have no idea. It's. I think that's most likely yeah, what happened. Yeah, that sounds like a really good explanation. Um, that or like, I mean, I don't know what this guy's body was like. He might have been like, let me just show him what I got. I, and, um, I, uh, and I don't see if think he, that was it. Like, wants to second guess his plans for the evening. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I don't think that was it. Yeah, but what else could it be, Holly? I don't know. Or it was like cartoon style. He had clothes on. And then. Yeah. And then got so scared. Yeah. They just, he just popped out of them. Or maybe he did some bad stuff and he took off his clothes so that nobody would see they were covered in blood. Or maybe. He needed more linen. More linen! And he was wearing a little night dress <laughs> and used that in the blankets. Maybe. Maybe he tied it up with the sheets to climb down. Yeah. That would make the most sense. Yeah. Or he did the killing and threw his clothes into the fire and then went out. But they would have found that in the fire, I feel like. I don't know. They weren't looking very hard. Yeah. The guy was like, here's my alibi. And they were like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm naked and distraught. <laughs> we believe you. But this other guy who has all these things where he's like, I wasn't there. I have pawn tickets. I went to see this guy. They were like, meh, 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 whatever. Go to jail. <laughs> right. 
So crazy. Anyway, toast? Toast. To all of the victims. All of them. Yes. Um, To the baby. He was one of the victims, but he can have another clink. Terrible. Whoever this person Mm. was is terrible. Mm. Um, to the 14-year-old that was fast asleep and now... Totally traumatized. Uh, Absolutely. Who was just, like, sleeping. And they were like, what? And now they had, like, pitchforks and... Exactly. (laughs) So to her. And to poor Margaret, who could not get oysters anywhere or pay the bakery tab. And then she came home to murder. Yeah. I think there's more to this story. There could be. I always am like, why was she out? And that's when they came in. Did they wait for her to leave? It seems like they waited for her to leave. Yeah. So why did she get spared? Yeah. Or did she know? And then she was like, I just have to be gone for a half or an like, hour. Or like, what if, um, what if, what's his name? The the owner, the, like, husband of T- the first Timothy house. Timothy Mar. Yeah. yeah. What if Timothy. I think it was Timothy. Like, what if he also knew something was, like, going to go down? But, like, in a way of, like, maybe he did just owe some things. Mm-hmm. And he was going to have some visitors and he didn't want Margaret to, like, know what was going on. Maybe. And then it turned into that. Maybe there's there's nothing but possibilities. But Margaret always struck me as like it's a little weird that during the they came in like right after you walked out the door, yeah. And then like your knocking on the door is what let them leave. Yeah. Were you in on this? And no, nobody thought. Right. Yeah. Maybe she was totally innocent, and I'm just speculating. But like, it seems like something that would have been worthy of exploring, and they were just like, no. Yeah. We don't need that. Something's fishy here. I think so. Very fishy. It's very fishy. To Margaret. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> Any other toes? <laughs> no, I'm good. No. To oh. the king. To the king! <laughs> to a king regent. To, to king regent and the mad king George. And if we decided it was too late to go out for oysters... <laughs> We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I want that so bad. Let's like an army of guinea pigs. I want them.